Uh, it's good to be together again as we look at this great passage. Uh, let me pray. Father, we thank you for the Lord Jesus and we thank you for Mark's gospel which speaks of him. And we ask that you would please be with us tonight and open this passage up for us and change our hearts at their very core. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Uh, Well, can I add my welcome to Rogers? It's great to be here uh, with you this evening. It's great to have you here, especially if you're new or or visiting. Um, You have joined us in a series uh, as we journey right through Mark. And this evening, we come to the end of a major section in Mark's Gospel. Uh, It's a section that began back in chapter 8, where Peter, Jesus' disciple, confessed that Jesus was the Christ. Um, And it's a section that's been all about Jesus explaining to his disciples what it actually means for him to be the Messiah, the Christ, and how it means, actually, that he's going to have to die. And Jesus has said that explicitly twice. And now in our passage, we have a third and final statement of it. If you want to look back to the beginning of the session section in your Bibles, by the way, it's page 1002, be good to have it open, but in chapter 8, verse 22, um, you'll see that this section kind of begins also with the healing of a blind man. Um, and now, in our passage, the section ends with another healing of a blind man, Bartimaeus. Uh, by the way, names, when you come across names in the Gospels, it's a bit of a mystery why they're there. Uh, this is irrelevant to the sermon, but really interesting. I think actually the best explanation is that the names uh, were eyewitnesses who were still alive when the Gospels were written uh, and who were present in the communities. If you want to know more about that, there's a great book on it by a guy called Richard Borkham. Anyway, second healing. So you've got these two healings of blind men, but there's an important difference between the two. The first healing, if you were here you might remember, if you weren't, doesn't matter. The first healing is like a two-stage healing where the guy is healed but then he only sees things fuzzily. And then he's kind of a second stage and he can see clearly. Um, But in our passage, Bartimaeus is just healed and sees and follows Jesus. And I think Mark is saying something by this. Uh, What he's saying is that what what has happened in between the two healings is that things have gotten clearer. Jesus has made plain what before could only be seen murkily. And now at the end of this section, we, like the disciples, are meant to have come to see something clearly. We're meant to have finally understood what it means for Jesus to be the Messiah. I wonder if we have understood it, though. I wonder if we have truly grasped what it means that Jesus the Christ came in order to die. Or I wonder if, like the disciples, it has still in a way not really sunk in. I mean, of course, we know that Jesus came to die, right? Like the disciples, we've heard him say it over and over again. Anybody who knows anything about Christianity knows that Jesus came to die. And yet what we see in our passage is that they still, in a way, they just it kind of hadn't registered. They hadn't registered what it meant and how it actually changed everything. And I wonder if that can really easily be true of us as well. 
that we know that Jesus came to die, but it hasn't really got into us deeply, rearranged our circuitry from the inside out. And that's why we need, I think, like they did, to hear Jesus' words in this passage. Um, at the end of last week, my computer blew up, uh, did something, and it was not working. And uh, it was in this week getting fixed at the Apple Store, that kind of modern temple of glass and touchscreens with the priesthood of hipsters in blue T-shirts. You know what I mean, right? It's like, wow, and you're kind of overwhelmed by these people and they go into dark rooms. And Anyway, when I say getting fixed... Right, computer was getting fixed. Basically, they told me what was going to happen is that basically everything on the inside was going to be replaced and it would be just a completely new computer on the inside. Same on the outside, on the inside. At least that's what they told me, but I picked it up this afternoon and it ruined my analogy because they just did some little magic and it was fixed. So anyway, but you get the picture, right? Com- completely replaced on the inside. And because I've been thinking about it this week and it occurred to me that that's actually not a bad image of what this section of Mark is meant to do for us. It's meant to completely rebuild our worldview from the inside out. So therefore, can I invite you to, to pay attention now to this last part of Mark chapter 10. Because in it, the radical difference that Jesus makes gets kind of tightly focused by this question of what greatness is about. Now we begin, as I mentioned, with Jesus predicting a third time what is about to take place. I'm going to take us through the text from verse 32 to 45 and then reflect on what it means for us. Okay, verse 32, have a look at it there. They're heading to Jerusalem and Jesus is resolute. He knows where he's going and Mark tells us there is a crowd following. The disciples are astonished those following are afraid. Why? Well, because I think they are beginning to appreciate what is in Jesus' mind. And then he makes it clear to them again. He takes the 12 apostles aside and he says in verse 33, we are going up to Jerusalem and the Son of Man will be delivered over to the chief priests and the teachers of the law. They will condemn him to death and will hand him over to the Gentiles who will mock him and spit on him flog him and kill him. Three days later he will rise. This is the most detailed prediction Jesus has made of his death and in the chapters that follow in Mark we're going to see it unfold exactly like this. But what happens straight away after this shows that for all Jesus' clarity here the disciples haven't really got it. They hear him speak about humiliation, but all they can think about is glory. Verse 35, have a look at it there. James and John come to him with a request that's just mind-boggling. Teacher, they say, we want you to do for us whatever we ask. Seriously? It's not just do us a favour, Jesus. It's We want a blank check. Now, James and John, right, they were part of Jesus' inner crew. Okay, with Peter, they seem to have been his closest companions. And in just before this, they've been privileged to share in some really amazing moments. I think their request here owes a lot to back in chapter 9 where they went up with Jesus on the mountain and they saw him transfigured. He was glorious. And so I think what's going on here is that they're gambling on this relationship. 
They're trying to use their level of intimacy with Jesus to get a kind of guarantee out of him. It's really pretty ugly, I think. Jesus, though, is quite a smart guy. And he doesn't let people use him. And so he responds by asking, yeah, what do you actually want, guys? That's what to do. And somebody says, can I have a favour? You say, what's the favour? Well, they think we should never have really expected that to work. So they come out with it in verse 37. We want you, Lord, let one of us sit at your right hand and the other at your left in your glory. Nothing much. Wow. They want the top job. They don't just want kind of a low middle management. They want to be right up there. This is an ugly moment, isn't it? It's a, it's a shocking, naked ploy for greatness. They just try and get in first, don't they? They say, give it to us. Give us the glory. We believe in you. We saw you on the mountain. We're on board. We know you're glorious. So let us be the ones at your right and your left. Now, as we'll see, this irritates the other disciples. Fair enough, we might think. But what's really interesting is that Jesus doesn't just rebuke them for putting themselves forward. He doesn't simply reject their desire for greatness. Instead, he tells them that they probably wouldn't be asking for it if they knew what it actually meant. Verse 38, have a look at it there. You don't know what you're asking, Jesus said. Can you drink the cup I drink or be baptised with the baptism I'm baptised with? Now, Jesus is using these metaphors of cup and baptism to refer to the suffering and death that is ahead of him, the ordeal he's about to go through. We'll see the image of the cup come up again in the Garden of Gethsemane. Um, Just another aside, by the way, what Jesus is doing here by describing his passion as a baptism is he's filling the symbol of baptism, which everybody knew was about being washed with water, but he's filling it with a special content. He's saying it's about being connected to his death and resurrection. That's what Christian baptism is about. But he says, can you do this, James and John? And they say, yeah, yeah, we can do it, definitely. We're on board. Now, we want to make fun of it. We think it's ridiculous, right? We want to make fun of their arrogance and their overestimation of themselves. But, you know, Jesus is just far more generous than that. Have a look how he responds. Again, it's not with rebuke, but with correction. He says in verse 39, you know what? You will drink the cup I drink and be baptised with the baptism I am baptised with. This is actually a wonderful moment of grace from Jesus to them. Because what we see here is a picture of how in time, it's a promise of how in time these selfish, power-hungry disciples, they will be utterly turned around by Jesus. What Jesus means is that in time, James and John will indeed suffer in his footsteps. Now, we don't know exactly what happened to John, but we do know that this happened very quickly to James. He was killed in the early days of the Christian church. And Jesus says, James and John, yeah, you will, in fact, end up fulfilling your boast, even though at this point you have no idea what you're getting into. But then Jesus follows this with a direct rejection of their request. 
He goes on in verse 40, he says, But to sit at my right or my left is not for me to grant. These places belong to those for whom they've been prepared. This is a bit mysterious, isn't it, this verse? What it does is it leaves you hanging, wondering, who are these people? What does it mean that their places have been prepared? What Jesus is starting to do here, you see, is to reconfigure the whole idea of greatness. Bit by bit, he's turning upside down all the assumptions about glory that the disciples and us and, frankly, everybody normally has. In the next section, Jesus makes this crystal clear. As I said, the ten uh, come in verse 41 and they're, frankly, extremely annoyed. Why are they annoyed? Uh, Is it just because James and John are arrogant? Maybe. Or is it because James and John got in first and they're a bit miffed? And now they're a bit worried that they might miss out on the right and the left-hand places. Whatever it is, they, as much as James and John, actually, they haven't got what Jesus is on about. So Jesus says in verse 42, he called them together and said, you know that those who are regarded as rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them. I think lord it over just means kind of make the most of the fact that they're in charge and kind of rub it in their faces. And they're... High officials exercise authority over them. That, this is how it is, says Jesus. And you know what? He, he's right, isn't he? Of course, the impact of Christianity on our history means that this is a bit less obvious. Our government officials are now called ministers, which is a word which means servants. And rulers and judges in our context often promise things like to serve people. This is all because our culture actually has a kind of deep subconscious memory of what Jesus is about to say. But these features of our culture don't mean that things are really that different now, do they? We, we know all too well the way people in charge like to throw their weight around. And we know too many cases of self-interest and corruption amongst those in power, plenty in the news this week. And I think we understand within ourselves as well, don't we, how a sense of entitlement and power comes when people get to the top. But Jesus says, it must not be like that with you. In fact, he says more than that, doesn't he? Look at it there, verse 43. He says, it isn't like that with you. Not so with you. Instead, whoever wants to become great among you must be your servant. And whoever wants to be first must be slave of all. You guys, he says, that is my people, you're different. For you, being on top is about being at the bottom. Preeminence is about insignificance. Being first is about bringing up the rear. Greatness is about being a servant. Why is that? Why does he think that's true? How does he know that? Because it is actually quite an odd thing to say. Well, the answer, of course, is that that is how it is with him. Verse 45. For even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve, and to give his life as a ransom for many. 
Now, this is one of the most important verses in the whole of Mark's Gospel. So we just need to slow down for a moment and make sure we understand it. Jesus says it was his mission, his purpose in being, not to be served by others, but to serve others himself. How exactly did he serve others? Through, as he puts it, giving his life as a ransom for many. Here, friends, we are taken right to the heart of the meaning of the cross. And these words need to stay with us over the next weeks as we head towards Good Friday. The ideas and language in this really dense phrase, a lot of them are taken from that reading we had from Isaiah 52 and 53, where we read of the servant of the Lord who was pierced for our transgressions and crushed for our iniquities and who bore the sin of many and made intercession for the transgressors and poured out his life. That's what Jesus meant when he spoke of his death as a ransom for many. He meant that he would give his own life in order to buy back ours, to free us from evil and death and the hold that our guilt has on us. He would pay the price that was needed to release us and forgive us. That is the way that Jesus was our servant, by giving his own perfect, glorious life so that we, broken, miserable, stubborn sinners, might be redeemed. No more costly service can there be. And that, says Jesus, is what his greatness looked like. And that's why things have to be different for his people. But of course, we need to say a little bit more than this, don't we? Because Jesus, we've got to remember here that Jesus is not just another religious leader, another impressive and curious man. No, he is, as he says, the Son of Man, which by now in Mark, we know means that he is the Messiah, the one sent from God the one in whom God's purposes in the world are fulfilled, the focus of all God's action in the world, the one who was himself the Son of God. And so Jesus' example shows us more than just how things are for him and his eccentric followers. He shows us how things are in reality. He shows us how things are with God. Jesus' example shows us that service lies in the very heart of God. There is another passage in the New Testament that makes the reality of this really clear. And it's like it's such an important point that I just want us to look at it together. Um, I think we've got it on the screen, Philippians chapter 2. Next, there it is. This is Philippians chapter 2. Actually, that's the affirmation of faith. Let's get rid of that, go backwards, and... Can I take you there in your Bibles? It's on page 1,162. Actually, just, just get rid of that because that's what we're going to say in a bit and it's ruining the dramatic tension. <laughs> Philippians chapter 2, verse 5. 1,162. I'm going to read it, so if you don't want to go there, you can just listen. But listen, listen to... This is maybe the most incredible thing anybody has ever, ever said about God. 
Your attitude, says Paul, should be the same as that of Christ Jesus, who, being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be grasped, but made himself nothing, taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness. And being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient to death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God exalted him to the highest place and gave him the name that is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. The key to that incredible passage is that word in verse 9, therefore. You see, what the disciples have not understood, what we may well have not really understood, is that the cross was not an obstacle on the way to Jesus' glory, something he had to get past and put behind him. No, it was his crowning moment, the moment of his glory. The resurrection was not the reversal of the cross, as if it was a kind of momentary embarrassment that we can now move past. Jesus rose from the dead, bearing the scars of his crucifixion as a badge of honour. The resurrection sealed and confirmed the greatness of Jesus in his great act of service. Jesus' glory is precisely in his humiliation for others. Whoever wants to become great among you must be your servant. And whoever wants to be first must be slave of all. I hope that perhaps the weight of those words, that radical, impossible thought, might be beginning to sink in now. To me, to us. I hope that we, like the disciples, might be beginning to see clearly how radically Jesus the Messiah changes the way we look at the world and live within it. Because what would it look like if we really believed this? If we really, deep in our bones, had gotten hold of the fact that true greatness is about humble service? Or, to put it differently, the impressiveness, the successfulness of your life is a matter of how much it is about the good of others. Because that's also what Jesus' example shows us, isn't it? What service means. This is not the main point, but it's an important point. But service is not just about being subservient or or giving way to others' opinions and desires. That's what the kind of easy road people sometimes take. They think that service is just about forgetting about yourself and giving in to whatever other people want. But that's not what Jesus meant by being a servant. Jesus didn't give in to the disciples or to what we wanted. He gave us what we needed. Being a servant is about working sacrificially for what is actually good for others, not just for what they want. People often do think, I think, that that being a servant is about giving way, but it's not. 
It's about giving yourself to the good of others. What would it look like if we really believed that that was what mattered in life? That that was what was worth shooting for, pursuing, admiring? If that was what we saw as our highest possible achievement, the thing that should be our life's most important aspiration? It would profoundly affect everything, wouldn't it? I've struggled to know kind of how to make this obvious. I'm going to give you a couple of practical examples, but the risk is that they make this massive thought seem a little bit trite. I'm going to do it anyway, but then we're going to come back because they can't possibly exhaust it. But let me give you a couple of just pointers to where this might lead us. First, think about how this would change the way you worked, your, your job, whatever that is, or your, just the things you do during the day. This has got to change the way you think and engage with your work, doesn't it? On at least two levels. On one level, it's got to change your day-to-day work because your interest is not in serving yourself anymore and getting ahead. You might get ahead, but it's, it's not your main aim. It's an accident. Your interest is in the good of others. Now, it'll look really different in different work situations, of course, but the principle is the same. Uh, imagine, for example, that you are a kind of mid-level factory manager. Aspiring to be a servant in a context like that, it might mean that you did your best, you worked hard to do well both by the company and by your workers. It wouldn't mean you, gave, you just gave in to all your workers' requests and gave them, you know, let them get away with whatever they want because that wouldn't actually be serving them, because it's not actually good for them. But it would mean you took them seriously as people and cared about how your decisions affected their families and their mental health and so on. And it could be really hard work. It could cost you this act of service. Now, we all need to think about how this would affect our version of our occupation and our day-to-day experience. But there's a whole other level as well though, isn't there? Because aspiring to be a servant, it might easily change your thinking about what you're working towards as well, what your work was for. Um, I knew a man once who worked in a big accountancy firm and he kept refusing promotions because he wanted to have time to run the youth group each week at his church. Now, it wasn't the only decision he could have made. Another person in that position might have decided that the best way he could serve was by by getting more influence and using it for good. So I'm not talking about the decision, but that wasn't what my friend decided. He decided that he would be far more useful to people doing what he was doing. And it cost him. The point is not the actual decision. The point is that Jesus completely changed the factors affecting his decision. What mattered now was service. That was what was worth shooting for. Let me give you another example. Church. How would believing what Jesus says here change the way we're a part of a church community? Well, it would mean that a church community is above all an opportunity to serve others. It's not first and foremost about us. 
or our own good. But it's not, it's not about being fulfilled or balanced in our lives. It's about others, going to small groups, being a part of other things in our community life, coming to movies in the graveyard if it's not raining like this. Is it raining? Maybe wind. But you see what I mean? Our aim becomes the good of others, not just what we get out of it. And so we sometimes go to church even though we don't feel like it and it's a bit difficult because it's an encouragement to others. And sometimes we do things at church we don't want to do because they need to be done. Now it's complex of course, like everything. We need to keep asking ourselves whether what we're doing is in fact good for others or whether we're just actually facilitating others' laziness and selfishness. We don't want that kind of pseudo-service which can really be about me anyway. But the point is clear. We're here now for the good of others. Now, of course, these are just kind of nothing examples of a change that can only be big and deep within our hearts. Because if we really get hold of what Jesus says here, then it's just got to change everything, doesn't it? Because it means that at our very core, we learn to want, to desire something different. To give ourselves for the good of others. Brothers and sisters, as I've prepared this this week, it's been kind of obvious to me that it's actually quite easy to say this kind of thing. And it's probably not that hard to hear it and to think it. But like it was for the disciples, it's so easy for this radical idea to not truly sink in. So as we finish this evening, and as we come together to share in the Lord's Supper, at which we remember Jesus' death and how he gave his life as a ransom for us, I want to call you to just imagine for a moment. Imagine you had been there that you were there on the road to Jerusalem at this moment. Imagine you'd seen Jesus' face set firmly toward Jerusalem and you had heard the resolution in his voice as he said, we are going up to Jerusalem and the Son of Man will be delivered over to the chief priests and the teachers of the law. They will condemn him to death. And will hand him over to the Gentiles, who will mock him and spit on him, flog him and kill him. Three days later he will rise. Can you hear, can you see the determination of Jesus to serve you? To do you good even to his own death? Can you see how that moment changes everything? Because in it we get a window into the very heart of God himself. And what we see is glory. The glory of the one who was crucified. Those around him, Mark tells us, were astonished and afraid. That's not surprising really. They had seen something deeply confronting to our normal ways of thinking and more beautiful than they could ever have imagined. 
May God enable us to see it too and may it change our hearts at their very core. Amen. I wonder if you'd just take a moment just to think about what Andrew's been saying this evening and uh, perhaps just come before the Lord and uh, consider what he's calling you to do. So let's spend a moment in silence.